0: of who who should you have as the early hires mm-hmm. it's really the you need someone to make sure the trains are operating on time typically for a business to run you need two key elements you need a visionary and you need an integrator and uh...
1: hey guys mohit here In today's episode for Blash eCommerce Growth Academy, we are talking to someone who has been running an eCommerce business for the last two decades, right? And the topic which is very, very unique for this session is he's been running his business without an external support without a PE business, and you know, how we can build a sustainable business uh, without an external support, right? And how do you how he has managed uh, uh, the COVID situation, right where you know uh, you know the covid forced him to you know uh, shut down 15 plus stores right and you know how as as a founder and entrepreneur he navigates the entire stuff. The story is very very interesting so keep watching the show keep learning keep hustling right thank you Hey guys, this is Mohit here. I'm the host on yet another exciting episode of uh, Blash E-commerce Growth Academy. I, I'm at founder at Blash. Uh, today I have uh, guest Richard. Uh, Richard has been leading a pure organic brand for over two decades, right? So heartily welcome, Richard. You know Your journey will be really, really insightful for our viewers.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Mohit. I, I appreciate it. Excited to be here.
1: Oh, excellent. So, you know, let's get started a little bit of, you know, your background, Richard, you know, two decades been really, really long, you know, how you have been, you know, uh, going into the business? How did you start and, you know, how far your journey uh, uh, is till date?
0: Yeah, sure. So I I started, my journey goes all the way back to college. I've always had entrepreneurial kind of genes in me, always wanting to do my own businesses and and, uh, make money from it. I really got into it more in college. I went to Berkeley and uh, I went in mechanical engineering. I realized I I couldn't draw. You need to draw to do mechanical engineering. I didn't know that. And so I switched majors around and I took some computer science courses and realized I was really good at computer science. And this, just to date me, this is back in the late nineties and um, like right at the turn of the, the century in 1999. 2000. And uh, the World Wide Web was just starting up and starting to to get popular. And so I realized, okay, I can create websites and I can make money creating websites. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: uh, I did so well on the computer science classes that the university recommended me to work for the university. The professors recommended me to work for the IT. Uh, part of the university. And I built out Berkeley's first schedule of classes where you can sign up online. It used to be calling by phone. That was the old way to do it, to sign up for your classes. And one day I was uh, creating a website for a high-end, the highest-end salon in San Francisco.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: I would talk to the owner and he would talk about products. And he started talking about products for teenagers. He said, you know, there's no hair care products for teenagers. And teenagers have money now. And this was 20 years ago. Uh, They didn't have money before then to like spendable income yet. They don't have products to buy. And I said, you know what? We can enable your website to be e-commerce. And this was a new thing. Mm -hmm. And teenagers were the ones that were the first adopters on the web at the time. A lot of people forget that. And uh, I said, that's where they are. So let's do it. And so we did it. And we probably had one of the first beauty websites out there in the internet I didn't put in money because I was just starting out. I didn't have much money. So I was a minority shareholder, but I was a partner. And we launched a brand called Fulu. And it was just five shampoos, five conditioners, very cool flavors. The had a famous, not so famous designer back then, but now more famous. Now Yves Behar made the packaging. It sits in the Museum of Modern Art in in San Francisco. And uh, Sephora picked it up, Nordstrom picked it up. So that was great. And I started getting into the formulas at that time. And I I started realizing what's going into all these formulas across the market are all these ingredients that are hard to pronounce. Mm
2: -hmm. They're chemical
0: names. And even worse, they're not good for your body. And that's where I met my current business partner who was also attending Berkeley and she UC Berkeley. And I saw a write-up in Forbes that profiled her and she was making cosmetics out of her dorm room. Mm -hmm. And she was selling into Sephora and into Nordstrom, the same customers I had. And so I reached out to her and over the course of maybe two years, we started talking about the ingredients in cosmetics and how they're not good for you. Her formulas were entirely natural. She had a, a knack for creating, knowing how to create a natural formula in cosmetics and to stabilize vitamin C was what she really did 20 years ago. And I told her, I said, you know, we should start a brand. Don't do the formulation. There's there's going to be a limit to kind of your growth, working for the bigger company. Sure, it's stable, but we're young and we can revolutionize the industry. There's something going on here that, that's not right. Okay. And we can do a brand that's entirely good for you, entirely clean. Clean wasn't a word back then, but entirely natural, healthy, good for you. And we came up with the name 100% Pure and we launched that brand in 2004. And immediately we got a large account in the U S uh, almost overnight. We leveraged Susie, my business partner's connection with Bath and Body Works. Okay. And they had a multi-brand concept that competed with Sephora. And so we launched there in a hundred doors. So that, uh, created, we did a, a million in our first year, thanks to that connection. We were exclusive. It was highly risky. They could pull the plug at any time, which they did like a year and a half later. And um, but it gave us our start. And so I'm uh, grateful for that. And then we went on to online shopping Uh, not online shopping. We went on to um, TV shopping back then. Uh, That was a big thing back when people watched TV. And uh, with QVC, it was the name of the network. And we did that for three years into the recession of 2009 and 2008, 2009, 2009. We lost that business. And that was one of the biggest hits, I would say, aside from COVID. That was the, one of the most challenging times in the company history was losing that because that was like overnight, just 60% of your top line gone and all your expenses are the same. It's not like they get wiped out. So you got to cut, 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 cut and figure out how do you replace that revenue? How do you grow again? And that's where I made the commitment to do the online. I mm-hmm. made a had a aha moment that mm-hmm. my background is more tech and e- like a, I was a coder. I, I built websites. I knew how things work. I built a, a search engine as part of a project in school. You know, we we did the same thing Google did at the time. And we built our own search engines. So I knew how Google worked on the back end. I knew how they did their algorithms. And I thought, you know what? We should be doing the e-commerce because that's my strength. That's what I understand. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, we took, when you lose business from a, an account like Home Shopping, they send all that inventory is yours. They don't pay you until they sell it. So they are holding a lot of your inventory and they ship it back to you They sh- and they bankrupt a, a lot of companies doing this, a lot of small companies. So they sent it back to us and I thought, what am I going to do with all this inventory? I got to turn it to cash. And I just started using it in promotions online and doing a lot of gift with purchases, bundles, uh, value added promotions, which are much better for your brand than just discounts.
2: Okay.
0: Uh, something struggled with growing the e-com because a lot of the e-com shopping carts at the time and even now they make it easy for you to do discounts not so easy for you to program in how to do value add like gift with purchases and, and bundles and, and things of the sort uh, but that's what we did and so that was in 2009 we also opened retail stores so i had a retail store uh, first one in 2006 in berkeley which is now ironically my only retail store left after we went through COVID. Uh, I did have 16 of them at the height uh, going into COVID, which was not so great timing on our part. Yeah. Um, but uh, we made a pivot and a decision. We're not going to focus on retail as a strategy. It's too risky. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just you, you can lose everything given a COVID situation because mm-hmm. people don't go to stores and the expenses are so high and the rent. Uh, mainly the rent is the big one. You don't get breaks on rent when COVID happens and you're such a small guy. It's hard to negotiate that in a lease. So yeah. that's why we decided not to do retail so much. We just have our one location with a really great landlord, uh, in Berkeley today. That's and then over time, we, we built up our web business. We've been ranked uh Newsweek a year, I think last year ranked us as. We're number 30 on the list in terms of branded beauty sites, but we are number one Mm -hmm. out of uh, out of every, if you take only the indie brands, the indie brands that are not backed by VC capital and are not backed by a strategic. So they're not owned by a strategic and not, you know, don't have the deep pockets of a VC backing them. Our website's number one. Okay. so that was nice to see that uh kind of validation for our hard excellent.
1: work excellent to know very interesting like you know uh the brand name calls out you know a hundred percent pure and you know you are emphasizing on that part as well right right it will it will be great to know a little bit uh, story behind that as well uh Rick.
0: oh behind the name uh, you know i have two business partners so they're brothers and sister it's susie and james uh, James tends to be more silent in the background by his choice
2: mm-hmm.
0: and Susie and I can't remember who came up with the name, but it just came naturally 100% pure because what we're about in the core of our brand
2: mm-hmm. is
0: that we produce the best formulas possible, the cleanest, the safest, the most effective formulas. In fact, uh, since now moving forward to today,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I have another company and that's the manufacturing and R&D and on that we have multiple phds working on formulas yeah uh, to create the absolute best formulas we also have phds working on the machinery because creating the best formula is not just about the ingredients it's also about how you produce it so we produce our custom machinery uh, led by phd scientists and then we produce our custom formulas led by phd scientists so it's it's really science going into the effectiveness of our products and that's important we've been pioneers and leaders in the industry uh, leading this category and so we need to have the best in class to come up with the best products
1: okay okay uh i think in in one of our last discussion you mentioned about you have built this brand uh without a peer support right which is incredible right so yeah i'm curious about you know uh, so many founders today are building the brand they're doing very good but you know I think most of us find a comfort or a need of a external support, right? In terms of PEs or, you know, some kind of investment. But if you have to lay out a small framework, that, you know, how have you built this brand over two decades without an PE support, right? That would be also very interesting, Rich.
0: Yeah, you know, it's a really tough decision people have to make. and And there's a book on it, Innovator's Dilemma, mm-hmm. on you have to make a decision as a founder some, a lot of times. Do you want Mm -hmm. to be rich? Do you want to be King? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you go after your mission, but at times you got to decide, do you want control or do you want to grow your company? Mm -hmm. Uh, And you got to find balance. So there's not just one cut and dry decision. Yes. You should raise money or no, you should not raise money. Mm -hmm. It depends on the nuances and and what's going on with whom that is Mm -hmm. and what's going on inside your company at the time. And we decided not to take capital. If I had to do it over again, I probably would have and tried to grow faster and been the, the leader, but it would have been important that I took it from the right person because over the year we have people knocking on our doors left and right, wanting to buy the brand, wanting to invest in the brand mm-hmm. and you could choose the wrong partner. We almost went through with a strategic that ended up in bankruptcy and had, for example. Or we went, we tried almost got acquired by another very, very large brand, and they were going to trade for stock, and their stock went down to 10% of what we would have got value on. So, you know, you have to really watch those situations. Uh, The PE money itself, taking investment into the company to scale it up fast. I think that in a lot of situations, that makes sense as long as you strike the best deal for yourself. That can allow you to stay motivated stay passionate and grow the business it's something we didn't do but i would do
1: okay okay so if if you have to you know tell you know a young age founders that what should be a sort of framework that you know how have you built it like you know i understand this is a personal decision and a lot of xyz factor but if i choose you know to walk on your path right what are the two three mm-hmm. so things that you know you would you would would want to guide uh, the community today?
0: In terms of PE or in general?
1: In terms of building a brand without a PE support. Without a
0: PE support. So building a brand without it's, you got to have grit. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't read Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to have that because you're going to have so many ups and downs. And if you, I can tell you, because I'm on the angel side too, mm-hmm. and I've done angel investing and very it's it just kind of a, a side passion of mine. And where I've seen most entrepreneurs fail and it drives me nuts being an entrepreneur myself, uh, entrepreneurial investor, is when people give up. So I invest in a company and they just like, they hit hard times and they're like, okay, I'm going back to my day job and I'm closing closing the book. So if that's you, the entrepreneurial life is not for you. All in all, I don't recommend being an entrepreneur because you make less on average than what you would do working. You got to really have the passion and 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 be selfless. That's the other thing. If you're a selfish person, it's not going to work because you're going to take so much pain mm-hmm. and then and, and suffering along that road. But the reward will be higher if you do make it than mm-hmm. than going that other path. So it's a it's a risk reward thing. So if you have that grit and you have that drive and you can stay persistent, I would say, there was a study, I was having dinner with my father, okay. he mentioned to me, he said, Oh, I, I read in Wall Street Journal, that the number one attribute attributed to successful entrepreneurs is perseverance. And he said, that's what you have. I know, I noticed that. So I would, you know, perseverance was something taught to me by my grandfather, who was a big uh, influence in my life. And that I would say is the key thing that you need. If you don't have perseverance and you're, you give up on things, you get distracted easily, you go to the next big thing. You can't do it. You need to have that perseverance, that focus, that drive, and you can bootstrap your success. You also have to have discipline because if you, you, um, so another example, one of my early companies, the, the first one, uh, if you milk the cow too early, Mm-hmm. You're not going to achieve the growth that you want to achieve. And, and what that means is, is that if you take out the money from the business that's generating, so you get some success and it's generating cash, okay. and you decide, oh, I'm making a lot of money with my venture. It's successful now. And you take out that cash because you want to spend it and buy things or you know use it personally. You limit the growth. Your company is just has this huge need for more and more cash. You got to keep fueling it and keep growing. So that's, I would say that's number two. So number one is make sure you have the key attributes. So you got to have the perseverance as the the key of all the key attributes, uh, discipline being a secondary attribute. And number two is, you got to reinvest in the business, you can't just make the business somewhat successful and pull things out, your competition is just going to kill you It's like slaughter you if you do that. So you got to keep reinvesting. And then number three, you got to look to the future. You can't just look to the next day. You can't look to the next month when you're running a company, you're always working ahead of time. You need to be working three months out. You need to be working one year out. As you get bigger, the further out you need to be working. You know, when you're a big company you start working five years out, even like you take a company like Amazon, I'm sure Bezos is working like 10, 15, 20 years out. Uh, So, so you got to look to the future so those are the three key things if you're not even if you're using pe money those things help but if you're not using pe money you definitely need to do those three things
1: okay okay so here you know brings me to the next point right now what could be the two three mistakes to avoid in this whole you know if i have to you know walk on this path right what are the two three things which you know you have seen or you know you would you would suggest that you know, in right, to avoid some of the common mistakes
0: Yeah. The the first one would be, I've seen so many businesses go out of business, Mm -hmm. like go, go bankrupt. And and it's just, it's inevitable in every business. If you survive long enough, you're going to get one of those experiences or more. Uh, You know, we've come close at times and in order to prevent that you need to make sure it's nice to make big bets, but you never want to make a bet. That's going to sink the ship. You always want to survive. It's never a 100% sure thing. You don't know what's going to happen in the broader economic, the broader world. We know that now with COVID, with the, the war in Ukraine, uh, you know, you just can't, you just can't predict what's going to happen that's out of your control. So never make a bet that's going to sink the ship is rule number one. Rule number two. So that's a big mistake that can be made if you make too big of a bet. I almost did it with the retail stores. Luckily, it wasn't a, a big enough bet that would sink the ship. Okay. Uh, it was almost there. Second biggest mistake in doing it is doing, doing too much. So instead of going wide and trying 50 different projects, just choose three for a quarter. Okay. So number two is, is to stay focused. And, uh, number three, mistake number three, you can make along the way is, um, I would say not trusting your own decisions and giving too much to, to a consensus decision. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I've done this along my journey and I've, I would say, you know, I, I don't really have regrets along the way, but if I could change something, I would go with my, my own decisions. You take in all the data, you listen to all your people. That's very important. But at the end of the day, you don't have to make a decision that satisfies all your people. In fact, Being successful as an entrepreneur, a lot of times means going against the grain and going against what everyone else thinks, because you have a different perspective than what everyone at that table telling you their input has. So everyone at that table might think a certain way, but you have all their input. You have other data points. You have outsiders telling you other points. You might think entirely opposite of them and make a decision for that. And you need to tell your team this. You need to tell them, look, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to take in all your input, but I'm at the end of the day, I'm going to make a decision that is I feel is best for the company and I expect you to support it. But in return, I'm going to listen to you and, and take what you say to heart. Uh, there were things like, um, I'll give you some examples in e-commerce.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: when retargeting came out, I wanted to retarget right away, do that kind of advertising, which is commonplace nowadays. You know, someone visits your website, you retarget them. The team, my marketing team overwhelmingly told me, oh, that's scary. You can't follow people around the web. We can't do that. that will violate their, their personal, you know, their privacy. We, we can't retarget. And now look today it's, it's not only is a it commonplace, it's one of your best marketing techniques. So we didn't, I knew from all my data points that that was going to be a, a big thing, but I chose not to do it. Cause I wanted to pacify my team. I went with the consensus I go with what you feel you have the best final decision listen to everything speak last and then make your final decision that's not based on a consensus
1: all right i think very interesting points uh Rick. sure so you know uh, you touched upon you know you're your listening to the team and you know it's been you know uh, uh, you as a founder trying to balance out you know how to build a good performance team right so in the in so in the whole journey, right, building a good team also plays a very pivotal role. And as a founder, I understand that part. And in the early stages, it is I think very very important. You know, it, it the important gets amplified, right? So what is, what is your take in terms of building the early stage team, right, for an e-commerce company? And to be very very specific, what are the key roles which you know you would want to keep it light? with you and you know some of the key roles which you can outsource to you know probably an outside vendor or something like that right some insights around here Rick.
0: yeah so so it's a great question because i feel like it's been my common nature to try to replace put people in areas that i'm actually good in and i i think this is a common mistake across entrepreneurs people growing their business the who who should you have as the early hires It's really the, you need someone to make sure the trains are operating on time. Typically for a business to run, you need two key elements. You need a visionary and you need an integrator. And I'm taking this from um, uh, a little bit from EO's way of of operating a business by, uh, I know Vern Harnish has written a book scaling up on it. And there's another book, Traction by Gino Wickman.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: they uh, they talk about the visionary tends to be the founding CEO because you have the vision and you have the creative, but you're kind of all over the map in terms of what you're doing and, and where you are. You're always thinking of new ideas. You really need a disciplined integrator that can get the things done, that can execute. It's mm-hmm. rare to have both in the same person. You can have it sometimes, but it's rare. It's kind of like if you look at Facebook, you have Mark as the visionary. You have Cheryl Sandberg, who who has now left, but she was the integrator, she got things moving. Okay. And uh, with any business, you need that. So you need to find your integrator. Very important. You need to invest on bonus on. You know, never forget. And my I did a, a Harvard Business School uh, alumni program called uh, Owner President Management, and one of my professors, Boris Grossberg, he. He, he mentioned in class, I think more than once, he said, never forget that money motivates. And so you always need to make sure you have your incentive programs aligned with your key people to get them motivated. Uh, be protective of equity. You can always do you know phantom units. There, there's ways around it that you can still incentivize your people and give them the upside, but not give them too much where when they move on, they become uh, a pain for you. <laughs> You don't want that to happen. Uh, So you need that integrator. That's key. It depends on how good you are with finance. If you need like a part-time finance person, a full-time finance person, if you're very into, you understand numbers extremely well, and you like the financials, Mm -hmm. you could go with, you know, part-time finance people. Um, If you're not, you probably need a good, solid finance support, uh, depending on how big you're starting or how big you are can outsource or you can, can get someone full time on that. So, so you need your financial support you need your operations support. And then you do your marketing and sales Mm -hmm. and then depending on how big you are, you build out your team under you for your marketing and sales and have your support there.
1: Got it, got it. So interestingly now to build a high performance team, you know, it, it's it's I think imperative to leverage technology also today, right? So what what are the, sure. what are the key areas in terms of you know you rely upon technology or you know take enabled tools which have helped you?
0: So it's it was it's really interesting because pre COVID, I had all my staff in house. Yeah. Every single one of my employees, nearly every single full-time worker was working in Silicon Valley for me. I had a very expensive payroll uh, that didn't work during COVID, right. this payroll. So COVID hits, everyone goes remote. Uh, everyone refuses to come to work. They say they're too scared. Um, they like to stay at home. They'll quit if they have to go to work. So, you know, this got me thinking, While wow, we're paying these high Silicon Valley rates uh, for people that aren't even, that are located in Silicon Valley, but aren't showing up for work. You know, I could hire people in other areas, you wouldn't know the difference. And it's not like the only smart people are in Silicon Valley. And so as time went on through COVID, I tried to hang on, tried to keep my staff, but COVID impacted our business materially so much, I had to make changes. Mm -hmm. And so I had to do some cuts and and reorganization. And part of the reorg and uh, another professor at Harvard helped me formulate this plan was to create a high performance global workforce. And so with a high performance global workforce, what that meant is I can use teams from globally around the world as long as I have a way to keep them productive and engaged and uh, hire the smartest talent from other areas of the world. And so I operate in in teams. So I, I use a team leader, which we focus a lot of effort on training, making sure they're very impactful, making sure that they know how to run and offshore team is extremely, extremely important. And then we hire, depending on the geographic areas, depends on where the talent is. So for example, like India has a lot of engineers, engineering talent, they just have great education systems and a lot of companies in tech in India for the last few decades that has produced a lot of talent. And and so we have like engineers in India. We have our ops team, I still have my, uh, head of Ops, who's been with me for ten years in Silicon Valley, but she runs a team of of offshore ops down in South America, so that the time zone works that way. And the same with my my marketing is spread across, uh, I would say, geographically around the world. What is really cool with this is you get an extremely diverse and inclusive team.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: you you get a, and when you have diversity and inclusion you get major major benefits because you get perspectives from people from different walks of life and that is how you formulate the best ideas and the best solutions to issues is by having different perspectives if we're all the same we're redundant if i had a bunch of people on my team that were like me it'd be redundant with my same background we'd all be thinking the same thing we wouldn't need more than one
1: okay 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 uh very uh, interesting insights here right so maybe a couple of one or two more questions here uh, so us as a market is a lot more mature when it comes to e-commerce when it comes to you know customer expectation right though in India also like the e-commerce has been growing and you know that is how it will be growing for next couple of years just want to understand a little bit insights about customer expectations there. Like, you know, what do you think uh, some of the two, three things somebody, you know, if I would want to build a sustainable brand, uh, in us, right. Uh, so how is, uh, the customer expectation defined there? Rick?
0: In terms of just broader e-commerce, the uh, Amazon defines a lot of the customer expectations. In fact, you can't ignore the Amazon marketplace because Amazon is the fastest growing in my industry in beauty, for example, and their fast shipping is one of the reasons why consumers go to them. So for example, I've run my own warehouse and now I outsource to 3PL. My own 3PL cannot keep up. They get behind on shipping. They have staffing issues and it seems like Amazon has had it down for decades. And the consumer expectation is that their package comes within days of ordering within 2 days ideally most of my customers anyways so that's number 1 number 2 is they want to make sure that the ordering is very fast and seamless via mobile everyone's shifted to mobile so 80% of my traffic is mobile now uh, maybe 60 70% of all orders are placed through mobile now and and it just continues like people are not going to use desktop computers except for work when they're at home they're going to be on their phones they're not going to like take out their laptop and be like oh I'm playing around on my laptop looking up websites. No, they're it's too inconvenient. They're all on their phones. So that's number two is you got to embrace the phone. And you got to embrace the phone first. It, it, something when you do design, when you're doing your Canva designs or or wherever you're you're creating your your mock ups, have them do the mobile first. Then take that design and move it to desktop. Don't do desktop first and move it to mobile. That's that's the wrong way. Your customers are on mobile or in the US anyways and I know a lot most countries now too. And so that's, I would say, is number two that you need to know. So one is the fast shipping, one is the mobile, and the other is the communication. So when I started 20 years ago, the communication, I built the business on on email and SEM, search engine marketing. That's mm-hmm. how we did it in 2004, 2005, six, seven, 8. And then came out social media, and but it wasn't a big way to generate sales uh, it was slow to grow relative to I would say like if you take China for example where everything's social media now and marketplace and uh but now your email has somewhat dried up and it's harder and harder to generate revenue through email because people are inundated with email they're not on it you got to know where your customer is so try to find out where she or he is and a lot of I would bet it's not email it may be TikTok, it may be Instagram, uh, you know, maybe X, it, it depends on what you're selling. So for us, we're making a push on, on TikTok and Instagram. That's where we believe our customer is. If you look to a country, like I look to China and e-commerce because they've leaped ahead. They did a leapfrog because they didn't have desktop computers and they went straight to mobile. They also advanced on their social commerce. And a bulk of their e-commerce sales are done through social and live selling. And, um, also through Tmall, the marketplace, will the U S get to that. Exact probably not, but I can see the U S getting more into social sh- selling because that's where the customer is. They're browsing on these, on the social sites. If they could easily shop through those social sites, it just makes sense.
1: Okay. 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 Uh, so. What are the two, three you know, categories which you think that in US uh, is growing or would grow in next couple of years, uh, if you would want to expand?
0: Yeah, two, next two years, I see TikTok growing. I know TikTok's banned in India, which creates a challenge with my India team. Uh, there's ways around it. But um, I can see TikTok growing in US. There's always the talk of it being banned. But as it gets more ingrained and people rely on it, for income, I would say it's less likely that the U.S. is going to ban it overnight because it'd wipe out. There'd be too much uprising. It'd wipe out too many people's source of income. And um, so, I would say TikTok is a big source of growth in the next two years for commerce. The other area of growth, if there are two things in the next two years, two years is a short period of time, but AI is is definitely. Growing and it's, I don't know how it's going to shake out. It's really interesting because mm-hmm. it used to be SEO was that it's still the big thing, and we're a leader in SEO. We've done a lot with SEO. We spend a lot in SEO. It, typically, your spend on SEO tends to be staff or agencies or or whatnot to do a, a lot of your SEO work, whether it's writing, backlinking, um, you know, doing on-site SEO. Uh, fixes or improvements and how is ai going to change that because are people going to go to google anymore or are they going to just type into their chatgpt the question and get an answer or, or llama or whatever ai or bing you know microsoft has their bing now as it improves i would say current state of it probably not but it's going to improve rapidly in the next 2 years and there may be a a sea shift away from search engines to something else or maybe search engines and ai converge so that would be something to keep a close eye on
1: interesting so one last question here Rick. like you know if you have to put say one problem which you think a technology would like to solve for you as you stand today right what would be that
0: you know i've mentioned this to many many teams uh and many companies, including like we use Clavio on email, I've used attentive for SMS, I've used I've used a lot of different platforms, a lot of different technologies. And what I don't understand is everyone is making the investment in AI in terms of language models and mm-hmm. subject lines text. But where I would like technology to see is I want technology to actually, it should be able to determine each individual consumer, what would be the best email for you to receive? What would be the creative on that email? Mm -hmm. What would be the best time for you to receive that email? What would be the best offer to put on that email? What would be the best language to put in that email? What would be the best products to put in that email? How and successive emails after that, and when to send you an SMS, when to text you on WhatsApp or messenger and automatically do it. Not require a human to get involved because it's tailoring individual. If I have a million customers, I, I I don't. It would be very expensive to have a human approve each and every one of those, you know, individualized, personalized emails going out. So where I want to see tech go is to a state where it can automatically just handle my communication out to the customer based on the data science and. And their, you know, all their data that they've crunched, which should be smarter theoretically, should be smarter than a human, to give them the best without requiring approval, without requiring oversight.
1: Interesting. Maybe you
0: have some QA checks in there that check random ones, but uh, all in all, automated.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I think it was very, very insightful discussion, Rick. Uh, uh, one of I have reached to one of my favorites uh, uh, section of this podcast probably a couple of quick uh, uh, rapid fires here you know uh, what what is if you have to suggest uh, some of the key books that you have been reading or you know you have read in the past
0: yeah i, me- I mentioned a few during this interview and I'll, I'll key in on some of them i love reading i love books i think it's really important to keep reading i also think it's important to do read case studies as well i'm a big um, believer in the harvard business school's way of learning which is the case study method Mm -hmm. there is a case study called project oxygen you can buy case studies from harvard business school project oxygen is uh google spent 20 million to study the effectiveness of teams and team leaders that's where i formulated my strategy on how to form teams so it's called project oxygen Uh, a great case study um i would say in terms of books You have Gino Wickman's book, Traction, which is great for uh, when you're an entrepreneur starting a business, maybe one to 10 million, uh, maybe one to 15 million in revenue. And then after that, you have Vern Harnish, V-E-R-N-E, Vern Harnish, Scaling Up. So that Mm -hmm. helps you scale up your business from beyond that point. So those two books kind of work, you know, hand in hand. And then of course, Angela Duckworth's Grit, to tell you you know the true success behind companies is grit you see you always hear of the successes but you never see the failures and i guarantee you whenever you meet an entrepreneur especially a, a successful one they have so many more failures under their belt than most people and it, it's from the failures that you learn and you grow but you need grit to continue and get through them and not give up
1: excellent And any any business leader which you follow rick
0: you know, it's, I like Elon Musk, I've liked him before, ever since he was with even PayPal mafia. Um, You know, I've, I've followed him. Uh I think my talking about mistakes, one big mistake, I, I bought him big on Tesla stock mm-hmm. uh back in the day, and uh, back before it exploded. And then my company needed money. And I sold the stock to, to my company to to uh, make money. <laughs> it's like maybe the bet on Tesla would have been even better going at 2000 times return. But uh, yeah, Elon Musk is one I follow. I just think he's a great visionary. He has uh, um, his perspectives of the future align with my own. I, I really think he has a lot of great insights into how humanity will evolve in the long, long and going back to you need to project the long term future he really projects the long-term the future
1: interesting interesting i think you know thank you rick uh, it was really really inspi- uh, insightful you know i did learn a lot of uh, uh, tips and tricks in terms of uh, building a sustainable business so truly thankful from the entire uh, team of Blash, right for taking some time out today thank you thank you